you Church of Christers just think you're the only ones going to heaven. What makes your church better than anybody else? You know, you're just a bunch of legalists who are trying to work your way into heaven. I don't understand what's the big difference and what makes your church so good. You know, there are good people in every church. Have you ever heard any of these kind of statements before? I think we all have. Do you know what these kind of statements are? These are biasing, slanderous, emotional statements designed specifically to cause the child of God to back off from accepting, following, and teaching the doctrine of Jesus Christ. They're emotional and slanderous, and they prove absolutely nothing. And yet, despite that, when Christians hear these kind of statements, they often cause us to back off from the will of God and from expressing what the Bible says about how we should serve and obey and glorify Him. I'd like for us to consider one of these statements that is often made. There are good people in every church. Is that true? If it is true, does that mean that every church is as good as any other church? If it is true, does that mean that there are saved people in every church? What does that mean about how we should serve God? I'd like for us to ask this question. Are there good people in every church? Before we ask that and answer it, would you please bow with me in prayer? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we are humbled that you have allowed us who are wicked and sinful to be forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us to spread your gospel in a way that encourages and convicts others to live by your word. Father, we pray that you would help us to be a shining light in a dying and dark world. That we would hold our light up like a lamp on a lampstand, that we wouldn't place it under a basket, but would shine it forth so that all men may see our good works and may glorify you. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity that we can gather here to worship you, to edify one another, and we pray that all things are done for edification within our assembly. We pray that all things are done to your glory. We want to glorify you above all else. We are unconcerned with how folks might view us. We are unconcerned with whether people would like us or dislike us. What we're concerned about is whether or not you are honored and praised and glorified. And we pray that where we're falling short in that, that you would forgive us, but that you would also correct us and help us to grow in your grace and knowledge. Father, we pray that you would give us opportunities to spread your gospel. Help us to serve and honor you in our personal lives, here in the congregation, on the job, at school, in our families. We love you, Father, and we're so thankful that you have loved us by sending your Son. And it's through him that we pray. Amen. Are there good people in every church? Absolutely. Absolutely. There are good people in every church. If by good you mean people who do good things, there are good people in every church. There are good people among the Buddhists and the Muslims. If by good you mean people that are generous and kind, 
There are good people among the atheists and the pagan idolaters. If by good, you mean those who are caring and concerned and compassionate. There are good people everywhere in our society, in our world. There are good people in every church. I have members of my family that I would set up in competition with anybody on this realm of goodness, even though they're in numerous kinds of churches. There are all kinds of good people in every church. But we need to remember what Luke says. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 13, he records Jesus in Luke 11 and verse 13 as He was talking to people. He said, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? As Jesus looked at the good people that surrounded Him, He said, If you, being evil, These would be good people, generous people, kind people. These were people who Jesus said gave good gifts to those who asked. And yet, in comparison to God, they were classified as evil. Which brings us to the next point, that in reality, there are no good people in any church. Not even this one. If, by good... You mean meeting the standard that Peter established in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, Peter said, Be holy, quoting from God in Leviticus, You shall be holy as I am holy. Is there any among us that, that is that good? We're kind. We're generous. We're caring and compassionate. Just like all the people we know in all the other churches. But who among us meets the standard that Peter established here. Holy as God is holy. Good as God is good. Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, the rich young ruler had come to Jesus and said, what have I got to do to inherit eternal life? He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded in Matthew 19 and verse 17. Matthew 19:17. Jesus said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said, There's only one that's good. And that, of course, is God. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 beginning at verse 9. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 9, Paul wrote, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Some might have us believe today that there are some who are so good that they have never turned from the Lord. That there are some who are so good who have been able to earn their way into heaven. But what Paul says is there is nobody who is that good. Are there good people in every church? Not this kind of good. There's nobody who's this good in any church. Not even this one. 
Which, of course, brings us to a dilemma. None of our acts of goodness can make us so good as to be saved. None of our acts of goodness can make us so righteous and holy as to deserve a home in heaven. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 9. The proverbialist expressed the problem very well. In Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 9, who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin. Who can say that? Who among us has gone to church so much that now we can say, that's it, I have done it, I have purified myself from my sins, I have cleansed my heart. Who can say, I have given so much money, I am now cleansed. Who can say, I have done so many good works, I have been so kind, I have been so compassionate, I have been so sincere, I have been so honest, that now I am holy as God is holy, and I deserve to go to heaven. Who can say they've become that good? No one can. We can't. The person next to us can't. Nobody in Franklin this morning, no matter what church they're attending, can say that. What we learn is that goodness unto salvation only comes by God's mercy through obedience to Christ's gospel. Look in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 explains this. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read about ten verses here, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. What do we learn from this passage? We learn that goodness unto salvation comes by the mercy of Jesus Christ. It is by His grace. We were dead in our sins and our transgressions. And there was not one single thing that we could do to change that. We could not earn our way out of our sins. We could not pay off the debt. We could not bring ourselves back to life. But the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ accomplished that. But I want you to notice, and we all recognize, I don't even have to say this, we all know that the Bible demonstrates that it doesn't happen for all people. The grace and mercy of Jesus Christ is not extended universally to everyone. In this passage, what does it say? In Ephesians 2 and verse 8, For by grace you have been saved. How? Through faith. The Hebrew writer says, Without faith it's impossible to please Him. 
That mercy is extended to those who have faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior. But I also want you to notice verse 2. As it said, you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He said, you were saved through faith. Those other folks, they're the sons of disobedience, the ones that haven't got the faith. They're the ones that are disobeying. So what does that mean? That means that we're saved through faith, but it's not faith unless it produces obedience. Otherwise, we're still a part of the sons of disobedience who are still walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. You see that? So it's through faithful obedience. We have to have faith that produces obedience. But one of the things I found interesting is verse 6. What happened? He raised us up with Him. Now, this is not written in a vacuum. This statement about those who are raised up with Christ is not written just all by itself. It's written within a biblical context, within a context of teaching that Paul has already established. We can find in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 3, Paul said in Romans 6 and verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, it says, And in Him, this is Colossians 2.11, In Him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. What do we learn? In Ephesians chapter 2, it pointed out that we have to have faith. That we're saved by grace through faith. And it's a faith that produces obedience. Otherwise, we'd still be a part of the sons of disobedience. And when we have that faithful obedience, we're raised up with Him. But when did that take place? In Romans 6 and Colossians 2, it pointed out that we are raised up when we have been buried with Christ in baptism. And then we're raised up with Him to walk in newness of life. Raised up to sit with Him in the heavenly places. That is when this occurs. And that is what Paul points out about those who receive the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. We have to keep that in mind. Are there good people in every church? Absolutely, if we're talking about kindness, generosity. Are there good people in every church? Absolutely not, if we're talking about holiness. But what about saved people? Because you see, that's the real question. The real question is, are there saved people in every church? Which leads us to the question, is every church teaching this gospel we just read about in Ephesians chapter 2? Is every church teaching the gospel that causes people to be raised up and seated with Christ in heavenly places? That is the real question we need to be asking. The question that says, are there good people in every church, is really a meaningless question. It doesn't help us understand anything about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the fact is, there are the same kind of people regarding goodness in every church. But are folks saved? Has the gospel of Jesus Christ been taught that takes people from their lost death in sin to being saved and alive in Christ? Because I'll tell you what we learn. Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9 says that those who follow different gospels are not saved. They're accursed. 
Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Paul writes to the Galatians, he said, there are people that are going to teach different things. And if they're teaching a gospel different than the one I have taught, they're not saved. They're accursed. If they're teaching a gospel that is different than the one that is based on Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who lived in this earth, who died, was buried, and was resurrected, then they're to be accursed. If they're teaching the gospel that says that you don't have to obey the way God has said you have to obey, that you don't enter Christ the way God has said you enter Christ, then they are accursed. And it doesn't matter, brethren, how good we are. It doesn't matter how generous, how hospitable, how sincere, how honest. It doesn't matter how many good works we do. If we're not saved according to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, His way, we're accursed. And this is not an issue about trying to be better than anybody else. This is not an issue of of trying to be above anybody else. This is an issue of trying to get in Christ. I want to be in Christ. How about you? I want everybody who's around me to be in Christ. How about you? And what I learn is it does me no good to say that because somebody is good that they're saved. Because, brethren, there's just nobody that's that good. Consider some other Gospels that are taught. Acts chapter 15 and verse 1 demonstrates one Gospel. And Acts 15 and verse 1 Even among the Christians at that time, it said, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's that gospel that says it's not enough to be a Christian, you've also got to be a Jew. You have to follow the laws of Moses. We're not going to read all of Acts 15, but we know very well that that whole meeting in Acts 15 demonstrated by the revelation of the Spirit and His work in Peter and His work in Paul and Barnabas and His work throughout the Old Testament demonstrated that Christians don't have to be circumcised. That's a false gospel. And folks who are abiding by that gospel are accursed. In fact, that's the very specific gospel that Paul was referencing in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. But what other gospels are there? There's some gospels that say that if you're sprinkled or christened, or have water poured on you, that that's baptism, and therefore you have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. But do you remember what we read just moments ago in Romans 6? In Romans 6 and verse 4, therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death. Baptism is a burial. I've never been to a funeral where somebody was laid in the hole in the ground and they sprinkled some dirt or poured a bucket of dirt on there and called them buried. It just never happened. Baptism is a burial. In fact, the Greek word baptizo really means to be immersed. That gospel doesn't say. There are some who would suggest that all you need is a moment of faith. In fact, faith alone justifies, we are told. Faith alone saves us. But James, in James chapter 2, actually mentions the word faith alone. The only place in all the Bible that the words faith alone are found together. And in James chapter 2 and verse 24, it says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. The only place in all the Scripture that talks about faith alone, and it says it's not by faith alone. And yet so many people today teach the gospel that says we are saved 
by faith alone. He says it's not. It's by a faith that produces obedience. A faith perfected in submission. And isn't that what we learned in Ephesians chapter 2? There are some who would suggest that we can say the sinner's prayer. Asking Jesus to enter into our heart, and when we do that, then we are saved. But here's my question. We can turn to Acts chapter 2. We see an invitation offered in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter offering that invitation, Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as our Lord God will call to Himself. Why didn't Peter say, repeat after me, and then offer the sinner's prayer? I'll tell you, one of the things that most amazes me is the number of tracts that I've seen as they talk about the plan of salvation, and every page will have a Bible verse on it until they finally get to the end and they offer the sinner's prayer, and it won't have a Bible verse there. You know why? Because that prayer is not ever found in the Bible. In fact, there is not one single place in the Bible where somebody who had never been in a relationship with God entered that relationship, going from lost and in the world to being saved and in Christ through a prayer. It doesn't happen in Scripture anywhere. And yet folks today teach that as the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's not what we find in the Bible. It's a different gospel. There are some who suggest that, well, really what matters is if we're sincere. If we're doing our dead-level best and we're just absolutely sincere in doing good things. But do you remember what we've already learned? In Ephesians chapter 2, it points out that we're not saved by our good works. We're not saved by our sincerity. I can't be sincere enough to be owed salvation. Salvation is by the grace of God. And He offers it to whom He will offer it. I, I tell you, I'm often amazed at the folks who will argue against baptism as essential for salvation. And they'll say, and they'll argue, and they'll avow just up and down all night long that you're trying to be saved by good works. But then when you say, but the Bible says baptism, the Bible says baptism, they will then reply, well, look at this person over here. Look at how good they are. Are you saying God wouldn't save them? Well, now, wait a minute. Which is it? Are we saved by good works or are we saved by grace? If we're going to argue against baptism and say, you can't, oh, you can't say that because that's being saved by good works, then I can't put somebody forward as being so good that God will save them without baptism. I just can't do it. I can't argue both sides of the fence like that. It's either by grace or it's by good works. I say it's by grace applied to those whom God said He'll apply. Some would suggest to us, that, well, you can be saved if you don't know enough. That those who are ignorant. But in Luke chapter 12 and verse 47, it says, And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they'll ask all the more. What this passage demonstrates is ignorance is no excuse. We can make an argument from this that those who are ignorant may not receive as much punishment, possibly, but they still receive the flogging. Ignorance is no excuse. I'll tell you, this is a scary thing. 
Galatians 1, verse 8 and 9. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, he is to be accursed. We want people to be saved, forgiven. But I'll tell you what, it's just not enough to be a nice person. As Ephesians chapter 2 pointed out, we've got to be a person who through faithful obedience has submitted to Christ, raised up by Him when we're baptized, buried with Him. I'll tell you, here's the thing that I think we need to keep in mind. We need to let God decide who will be saved. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 and verse 15. For he says to Moses, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God gets to decide. God will have mercy on whom He will have mercy. And you and I have to leave our think-sos, our preconceptions, our wants, aside. Because God is the one who decides who is going to be saved. God is the one who is the distributor of the mercy that saves. And He gets to give it to whomever He wants. But now we need to understand this. God has told us upon whom He's going to bestow that mercy. He's not just left us out there wondering and hoping that maybe it might be us. He has told us upon whom He will give mercy. Mark chapter 16 and verse 16. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 16, Jesus Himself says who will be saved. Mark 16, 16 says, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. A lot of folks hone in on the last half of that verse. All I can say about that is that if you want to be condemned, focus on the last half of the verse, but if you want to be saved, look at the part that talks about being saved. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That gift of salvation offered to all those who call on the Lord. When do they receive it? When they repent and are baptized for the remission of their sins. Not because they were already saved a few weeks ago or a few days ago or even a few hours ago, but because they want to be saved and receive the remission of their sins. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 and 10, Paul wrote, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. We have to confess our faith in Jesus Christ if we wish to be saved. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. I'm not sure how more clear the Bible could have stated it. 
Baptism now saves you. Not the washing away of filth from the flesh, but an appeal from a good conscience toward God. Or some translations say an appeal for a good conscience. That statement about it being an appeal includes within it that it's an appeal made from faith. Believing that Jesus is the Christ. Are there good people in every church? Absolutely. But there's not anybody who's so good that God owes them salvation. There's not anybody who's so good that they're holy as the Lord is holy. And so if we want to be good enough to go to heaven, we've got to rely upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. And Jesus has said upon whom He'll be merciful. Those who believe and confess their faith, who turn from their sins and submit to Jesus Christ in baptism, following Him, turning their lives over to Him. He says, I'm going to be merciful to them. Not because now they owe, it's owed to them, not because they've earned it, but because I'm offering them mercy and grace to these people. And it doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter what good works you've done. If we haven't submitted to this gospel of Jesus Christ, we're not good enough to go to heaven. Pull out your songbooks, please. Prepare to meet thy God, number 297. Have you obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ? There in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, it said, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 and 27, it says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. My question is, have you put on Christ? Is Jesus' righteousness covering you? Cleansing your unrighteousness away? We can't do that on our own. We don't do that because we went to the right church enough. It only happens when we submit to the right gospel. Have you submitted? If not, can I encourage you right now? We'd love to help you with that. Submitting to Jesus Christ in faithful obedience. Being baptized for the remission of your sins. If we can help you, why don't you come right now as we stand and sing, Prepare to Meet Thy God.